It's good to be with you today. Uh, again, if you're with us for the first time, thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope, hope you found us all right. And um, again, if we can answer any questions about who we are, what we're trying to do, we'd love to do that. Um, we preach through the Bible here at Mosaic Church, and so we are preaching through a series called The Way of Paradox, Following the Right Side Up King in an Upside Down World. Uh, today we'll be in Mark chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, you can uh, begin opening that up to Mark chapter 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the, the verses up here. They're already up there uh, to follow along. Um, just to kind of whet our appetite uh, before we read the passage today, I want you to think of the most amazing meal you've ever had. Uh, you know, I've had a few good ones. Um, the one that comes to my mind is actually one that was on a, a cruise uh, sh boat that we were on. We went on a cruise. It was just after our wedding. And if you've ever been on a cruise, you know you eat really well on those things. Uh, this was my first kind of adult vacation. Uh, it was still at the expense of my father-in-law, but I loved it just as much. Um, but if you've been on a cruise... You know that when you go to dinner, uh, you kind of have to work through that eating with strangers thing, right? They, they assign you where to eat, but, but you work through that really quickly because they start throwing a lot of food at you. And so I, I vividly remember, I, I feel like this was like my embarking into manhood moment. The first course of this meal was escargot, okay? And uh, that, that's snails, if you don't know what that is. And at this point, I, I was a fairly isolated and picky eater at this point in my life. But hey, we're on a cruise ship, and it was soaked in butter, and so I went for it. And this, this meal, I mean, that, that first course kind of marked the rest of it, but this meal was just decadent. I mean, you get, you get through the escargot to move on to the salad, and the salad to move on to the main course, and in between every course, they give you this little bowl of sorbet to cleanse your palate. It was one of those kind of meals. You get to dinner and, and the server asks, you know, when you're done with your first steak and lobster tail, would you like another? And you look at him and you say, well, yes, I would like another. And it was one of those kind of meals. But I, I kind of say that uh, kind of being silly, but uh, a meal can change things about us, right? Meals are, food is really good. Food is important. Food is a gift from God. And meals can change us. And today as we look at a passage, we're going to look at at the quintessential meal um, that God has um, given to us to, to change us and to show us about himself. So today we're going to look at Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 12, uh, going down through verse 26. So you can follow along as we read the word of the Lord. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just, it, it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our Lord, will stand forever. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we turn now to you, and we know that without your help, we can do nothing good. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would help us to understand your word, that you would open ears and eyes and minds and hearts, that we would see and we would believe what Jesus has to show us from his word today, Lord. Would you take the words of my mouth and use the meditations of all our hearts that they would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was a a book written, I think it was in about 2005, by a man named Christian Smith. It was called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. This book was a compilation of um, interviews that were done of American teenagers, both Christian and non-Christian, a, a wide variety. I think there were several thousand. It wasn't exhaustive. They didn't cover, you know, every teenager. But, but this, this book, uh, and it continues to remain just very shaping for me, had a lot to say about what it is that, that the world that we live in believes, what it is American teenagers believe about God. And I think it, it's more than just teenagers. I think it's really what, what a lot of adults believe about God. But uh, there's, this, there's this summarization. He, he, he basically summarized it, boiled it down to five things that Americans in their interviews, these, these teenagers, basically believed. And this is what they believed about God. I'm just going to read through them. Hang with me. I think you'll find them semi-interesting. Here's what they believe about God. They believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So generally, there's a guy in the sky. They believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So be good people. They also believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. They believe that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then lastly, they summarize it as that uh, they believe that good people go to heaven when they die. This is the spiritual landscape where we live. When we survey the broad, even evangelical world, this is by and large what people believe about God. As we look at today's passage, um, I'm going to suggest that there is more to know about God and to believe than we oftentimes do. As we look at this meal uh, my, um, my sense of this passage is that, that, that we should be filled with more fear of God. And so there, there's this healthy fear of who God is, but, but at the very same time that that is true, in this meal we should be overwhelmed by his love for us. And so that's, that's my goal as we kind of unpack what's going on here, is that, that we would both be filled with fear and overwhelmed by love at the very same time in what Jesus is doing here. And so as we look at the passage today, uh, I want us to, to kind of, we're going to draw out three different sections of the passage. So the passage breaks down like this. First, we're going to look at the preparation, and then we're going to look at the people, and then we are going to look at the provision. So first, let's consider uh, the preparation. 
Uh, oftentimes in the gospel accounts, Mark always catches us up where we are at, um, not only geographically, but also kind of redemptively, like everything is leading towards Jesus's final work on the cross. And so we are at a very particular point. And in verse 12, we see that uh, Mark says that this was the first day of unleavened bread uh, and when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Now, to us, that doesn't mean much. Unless you were Jewish and you grew up Jewish, that, that probably has a lot of meaning to you. But for the rest of us, that doesn't have a lot of meaning. So let's unpack exactly what was taking place as they were preparing for this meal. Now, the day of unleavened bread was the day that marked the beginning of Passover. Passover was the holiday of all holidays for Jewish people. This was the Super Bowl for Americans, right? This was Mardi Gras for New, Orle New Orleanians. This was the balloon fiesta for, for us, right? This was the event of the year. And so coming with that came a meal that marked it. We're going to unpack the meal. But let's just kind of further just expand what's going on here. Now, they're in Jerusalem the epicenter, the religious epicenter, where this Passover would have always taken place. It didn't happen anywhere else. And so with that came many, many people coming to Jerusalem, a small town, really, in, in the grand scheme of things. In fact, one historian, Josephus, in 66 AD, which was after Jesus, he tried to estimate how many people were in town for this event. And so that year in 66 AD, there were roughly 255,000 lambs that were sacrificed for this meal. Now these lambs would have fed families. And so on average, a lamb would have fed about 10 people, he estimated in his writings. And so that puts the, the, the attendance to about 2.5 million people. Okay, so that kind of begins to put our mind on what's going on here. This is, a, this is a hopping event that's going on. This is a very crowded city for a very important event. Uh, you see uh, Mark's language in the first four verses here, it, it's peppered with this idea of preparation. Everything was about preparing this meal right. They couldn't mess this one up. Right? Jesus was very particular in how things were to move forward from this point. And so what, is, what does he do? He tells them. He says, he, he gets two of his, his, his friends, two of his disciples, and he tells them, here's how it's going to go. You're going to go into the city you're going to find a man carrying a jug of water. You're going to find that man. That man is going to show you where, which room you're to, to prepare for. Now, again, remember how many people are in this city. Two and a half million people. How are they going to find this man? Well, the key is that it was a man. Now, carrying a jug of water was typically the role of a woman. And so typically, men didn't carry them. And so when they went into the city and they saw a man carrying a jug of water, it stuck out. Right? It was this unique thing that took place. And so they found that man. The text goes on to tell us that everything happened as Jesus had planned it. They found this man, the room, he took him to the room, they made the preparations. So what's going on here? One of two things is happening. Either Jesus had already made arrangements with this man. In other words, he had planned this, whatever, days, weeks in advance. He had found this man. He said, hey, we need a room to, to prepare the Passover meal. Can you make that happen? Yes. Okay, well, here's what's going to happen. You get the water jug. I'll send my men, and that happens. That, that's one option. The other option uh, is that Jesus was kind of prophetically forecasting what would happen. In other words, he didn't set all this up. It just kind of happened. 
Um, my hunch is actually that the first is the, the preference here. Commentators are kind of all over the place. And, and here's the point. The, the, the point is not to undermine that, that Jesus had this divine foreknowledge or this insight. It's just, it just really makes a lot of sense that, this, that Jesus had been planning and preparing this meal according to his own statutes. Like, he wanted this to go a certain way, and so it happened. Well, well here's what, what it's teaching us in these kind of opening verses is that that Jesus is planning and controlling every single aspect of this climactic week in his life. In other words, nothing was happening that Jesus did not intend to happen. And so even early on, before he goes to the cross, he's showing us, I am in control of this. Nothing is happening outside of my plan and my preparation. I think that's, that, that's important for us as we kind of approach this, this meal, that, that we know that nothing happens outside of God's control concerning our redemption. In other words, there is no circumstance, there is no event, there is nothing that happens in your life that God does not use ultimately for his glory and ultimately to redeem his people. And so even in a simple thing like this that we think, oh, that's so disconnected, like, what does this event have anything to do with me? It has everything to do with you. That Jesus was meticulously planning how he would redeem his people. And it's seen in the preparation that's taking place here. Secondly, we see the people. Uh, so first, we kind of look at the preparation that was, was happening for this meal. But, but secondly, we see the people. Um, there's a fancy literary term. I, I don't know if it's just to, to biblical literature or to all literature, but it's called a chiasm. Okay, chiasm is this just fancy literary term. I don't like fancy terms because we all struggle to believe them or understand them. So I'm going to introduce this to a new, new term in keeping uh, with the theme of food. It's called a sandwich. Okay? So a chiasm is a sandwich. And Mark particularly uses this a lot in his writings. He does this structure where he's trying to inform us about the significance of, of a, let me back up. Let me make sure everybody knows how a sandwich works. A sandwich has two slices of bread with some meat in the middle, usually, if you're a meat eater. The slices of bread are meant to complement what's in the middle, right? Kind of just gives it a little bit of that grittiness or that texture we're looking for in the sandwich. Well, that's exactly what Mark's doing here. The, the meat is what we're getting to, that meal. But what's around it, the slices of bread, is actually who's part of that meal. Okay? So look at verses 17 to 21. That's our first slice of bread. And then actually outside of the text that I read, verses 27 to 31 is the second slice of bread. So if you're looking in your Bible, you kind of see how that works as a sandwich. The slices of bread are the types of people that are invited to this meal. Jesus shows us what kind of people this meal is for. The dinner conversation begins in verse uh, 18, and it's extremely awkward. Okay, Jesus says, listen, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So uh, uh, just imagine the scene. It's a low table. They're laying around it. There's at least the 12 disciples there. And in fact, people believe there, there might have been other people. But at the table were the 12 disciples. And he throws on the table that one of you is going to betray me. And so the conversation then begins, well, is it me? It's kind of that internal struggle. Well, will this be me? Certainly it won't be me. 
But he begins by, by showing us that, 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 that he will be betrayed and that it's betrayers that sit at his table. But it's not just people and, and who we know, the one man, he's re- referring to, to Judas Iscariot, the one man who would sell Jesus for coins in order to betray him. But he's actually referring to, to all types of betrayers because then look down at the second slice of bread in verse 27. We're just going to kind of scan over this. This is where Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times. And so if you're familiar with that narrative, Peter does deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows, and he's ashamed and he's guilty, but ultimately Jesus restores him. But it, but it even says at the very end of it that, that, that Jesus says that all of the sheep will be scattered, verse 27. And so here's the point that I want to just kind of hone in on, is that the type of people that Jesus is inviting to this meal is people that betray him, that are cowards, and that scatter and run from him. Because when we understand that, it gives a lot more meaning to the substance of the meal. And so this meal is for cowards. This meal is for the weak. This meal is for the broken. This meal is for those who betray and are unfaithful. That's what Jesus is showing us. And so he's showing us, Jesus is showing us that nobody will earn a seat at his table. Nobody will come to his table with earned rights. That's what this sandwich does for us, is it shows us, like we sang in that song, not of good that I have done. It's simply in what Jesus is providing for us. The only prerequisite for knowing and tasting the goodness of this meal is knowing we are hungry and needy. That is the great prerequisite for understanding this passage. And how did the men respond to this? Look in uh, verse, um, it's at the very top there. I should have this written down. Verse 19. The man, after hearing Jesus talk about their betrayal that is upcoming, he says they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Now, if you've been with us, you know I've actually highlighted the word sorrowful several times. This word is used three times in Mark's gospel, the word sorrowful. The first time was when we, talked, uh, when we looked at that passage with the young rich ruler, how after Jesus had told him, go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me, this man walked away sorrowful because he was unwilling to give it all away. The second use is here in this passage. The disciples are told that one of them will betray him and they don't understand who it is or why and they are sorrowful in their hearts. The third time that this word is used is used of Jesus and we'll actually look at it in great detail next week in the following passage here. But in this passage, Jesus says uh, that my heart is sorrowful. He's actually talking to the disciples. It's sorrowful because he knows where he's headed to. He's headed to the cross. And in that sorrow, what Jesus is showing is that he takes our sorrow upon himself. In other words, the the sorrow of the young rich ruler and the sorrow of these men around this table is the sorrow that Jesus puts on himself and he carries for us. And so we see Jesus has been making this preparation. Okay, he's been making us making it very clear who the people would be that this meal is ultimately for. And so I I want us now to kind of in length and in in detail really to spend some time focusing on the meat of the sandwich 
by looking at the provision, uh, primarily there in verses uh, 22 down through 26. Uh, there, there are a few times in preaching where I will make myself extremely vulnerable to criticism, and one of those is right now. You get to find out what kind of television it is that your pastor watches uh, Monday through Saturday. <sighs> my, my shame is hidden in Jesus. It's okay. So, if you grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, you're very aware of this show. It's called Full House. Yes. Can I get an amen? Full House. TGIF. It was all about Full House. Well, if you are not in the know, they have extended it to now the Fuller House. Yes. So I'm not the only one watching this. Good. So the Fuller House is the the show that followed up um, many years later. I don't know what the time frame is. Where these kids that grew up in the Full House, the regular show, now are adults. And so they've kind of changed the the storyline. But they're they're adults and it's called the Fuller House. Well... In the opening uh, uh, version, edition of this new Fuller House, there was this really powerful thing, and um, has my wife left yet? She hasn't. Okay. Um, so we watched this, this, um, this, this first episode of the Fuller House, and at the very end of the first episode, they put together this little montage where they, they showed the, the, the old version, right? And they showed all the kids and when they were young, and then they, they put it next to the new version, right? And they just, it was this powerful thing. They had the music strumming, and listen, I, I did not cry um, per se. Tears welled, but they didn't drop. Um, but they were there, and uh, the, re- the reason that was is because when you put the old next to the new, it, it sometimes it, there's a powerful thing that happens right there, right? And so by, by them putting the old and, and all the nostalgia of my childhood and all that Friday nights were for me and getting to stay up to watch that show next to the new, now me as a grown man weeping on my couch about this silly show, it was, it was as powerful for me. And so that's actually what's happening here, is that the, the old is getting put up against the new. Actually, there's a lot of background that we have to understand in order to appreciate and perhaps even weep over the new. And so let's walk through some of that. I mentioned at the beginning that this was the Passover, right? And the Passover was the defining moment for Israel. And the Passover meal was the meal that marked that event, And so here, what is happening in verse 23 through 26 is the Passover meal, but Jesus is going to give us new reflection on it. So what what was the Passover? Well, we have to go way back. So we go back to Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. This This is God's people, the Israelites. They've been chosen by God to be his people. They've spent many years in bondage, in slavery to Egypt. Okay, uh, if you're familiar with this episode, you, you're, you may be familiar with the plagues. So there were many plagues that God put in judgment over uh, Pharaoh, the Egyptian Pharaoh, in order that his people would be released from bondage. And the climactic plague, the final one that did it, had to do with Passover. The climactic plague was the plague of death. It was actually the plague of justice, divine justice falling on everyone. And so on the night that God declared that this plague would take place, he said that this plague would fall on everyone, both Egyptians and Jews alike. So the Jewish people were not exempt from God's justice just because they were his people. 
but God made a provision. And so on that night, God told them, if you want death to pass over you, here's what you must do. You must slay a lamb, and you must take its blood, and you must put it on the doors of your house. And if you do that, what you are doing is you are putting your faith in the trust of God providing a substitute for you. And so that night when the plague fell, when divine justice would storm over Egypt, in every single home there would be one of two things. A dead child, the firstborn child, would be dead or a lamb would be dead. There was no exception. And so the name for the meal came that God would pass over those homes who were hiding under the shelter of the blood. And so divine justice fell on everyone, whether it be the family's firstborn child or whether it be on the substitute lamb that God had provided for them. You see, what the Egyptians were being shown and what we're being shown is that they were saved by God and that they were saved from God and that they were saved through God's provision. That was the great lesson that God was teaching the Israelites all the way back then, and he continues to teach his people today. And so the Passover meal was the meal that marked that event for generation after generation. It was annual. From that moment on, that night was the first night they had that meal, the slaying of that lamb, the putting of the blood on the door. They ate that meal together as a family. And so that night, and, and, and perpetually, God's people would mark their redemption by God through the participation in this meal. So catch up to where we're at. Here Jesus now has made preparation for that meal that I just described and everything that it symbolized. And we come now in verse 22, and it says, As they were eating, he took bread. Now, most commentators are in agreement that at this point in the meal, they were, they were in between courses, as it were. Now, this, this meal was a four-course meal, okay? The four courses were symbolic. They were symbolic of the four promises found in Exodus chapter 6. The promises were concerning God's rescue of them from Egypt, their freedom from bondage, their redemption by God's power alone, and then their renewed relationship with God. And so there were four cups that represented those four promises that were at this meal. At this point in the meal would have been the third cup, representing the redemption made by God's power alone. So here Jesus takes, he stands up, and he says, as they were eating, he took bread. Now listen, I'm going to come to the table because it's very symbolic. Bread would have been a common thing in this meal. He would have taken this bread and the common phrase recited generation after generation was coming from Deuteronomy chapter 26. And it would have sounded something like this. This is the bread of our affliction which our forefathers ate in the wilderness. And so the affliction of God's people represented in the wilderness was the refrain at this point in the meal. But Jesus doesn't say that. You see, these men were Jewish, and they would have understood what was supposed to have been said. But what does Jesus say? He says, take, this is my body. In other words, what Jesus is saying, this is my affliction. This is my suffering. And this is the way that God now redeems his people by his power. 
The second thing he does is he passes the cup around, right? He passes the, the third cup of God's power of redemption around, and everybody drinks of it. It was wine. It was, sorry if, if you think it was grape juice. It was not. It was wine. He would have taken wine, and they would have all tasted it, symbolizing not only the body that was broken for him, but the blood that was shed. Bringing up any imagery, the lamb, the blood covering the doors, finding shelter under it. And so at the end of that, Jesus says, he says, I will not drink of this cup again until, all of my, until the kingdom comes again. And this was a very common way of sealing a promise. We do it in all kinds of ways, like, you know, I won't do this until I accomplish this, right? Or I'll die if this doesn't happen. That's basically what Jesus was saying was, if I don't do what I'm saying I'm going to do, namely redeem my people, then I will die, I will suffer, I will be poured out for them. And so he's taking this oath that he will do what he has said he will do. And though that may be profound, the, the, the bread of affliction, the cup of the oath, the most profound thing that was happening at this table was the component that was missing. You see, none of the gospel accounts in the New Testament mention the hero of this meal. The, the hero of this dish was the lamb, the roasted lamb that was to be ate. All of it was to be eaten. None of it was to be discarded. And so the, the lamb is not mentioned anywhere. And so what's taking place around this table is these Jewish people are beginning to understand that, that the bread is no longer the bread of our affliction. It's the bread of Jesus' affliction. And the cup is, is no longer the, the suffering that we will, will, will pour ourselves out over. It's actually the suffering of Jesus'. And then they say, well, where's the lamb? The lamb's not on the table. He's at the table. And so here Jesus stands as the lamb of God preparing to be slain for God's people, providing a shelter for God's divine justice to pass over us. That's what's taking place at this table. What do you think God is like? Do you think that God, like our American teenagers do, is generally a God who exists, he kind of oversees everything? He generally makes sure that we're good people, being fair and nice, playing good. And ultimately, he's probably going to let most of the decent people into his heaven. And that's who God is. I think there is a, um, a, a rampant theology, really, that's taking place that thinks that um, the God of this Bible, this book that we take so seriously here, is actually just a really mean God. He's just a really bloodthirsty and angry God who happens to have a really nice son, right? They think that they, they, they look at these Old Testament passages and they think, ah, a God who would kill a, a child? But then his son comes and so he kind of shows us maybe, maybe we should be living differently and maybe just be better people generally and then that won't happen to us. But, but the exact opposite is true. I think another, another fault, a rampant theology that runs through us and, and is in our veins oftentimes is that God is this, this gentleman who just, he could kind of overlook some of our faults and failures. Like, ah, I know you tried, Adam, and you gave it your all, and you know what? That's good enough for me, right? You know, it's, it's good enough for me, Adam. You, you tried. But I think as we look at this table and the way God is revealing himself to us in it, 
something extraordinary is happening, and it is this, that our badness is meeting God's goodness. That we come to grips that we are the cowards and the betrayers and those who would forsake Jesus if given the opportunity, yet Jesus meets us like this as our substitute. That's what's happening. That God's provision of a substitute is the proof of God's love for us. That God doesn't just neglect his justice and his holiness and his righteousness that should have come to us, but instead of leaving us to ourselves, he provides a better lamb. He provides a better substitute. He provides better provision for us, namely Jesus. Do you know what the testimony or the witness or whatever you want to call it of an Old Testament Jew would have been that, that understood Exodus? You know what it would have sounded like? It would have sounded like this. I was a slave under the sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. I escaped bondage, and now God lives in our midst, and we are following him to the promised land. That's our testimony. I was a slave under God's judgment. God freed me from my bondage. He provided shelter through the blood of a lamb. And now God lives in our midst and he's leading us to the promised land. That is our hope. That is our anchor. May we find shelter in it. May we refuge and hide in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I think, I speak for myself, but sometimes coming to the Lord's table, we come just so, we just come in a way that is just misunderstood. We just, we look at the, the bread and the wine and we, and we think this, this is nice. Um, we, we think it's uh, meaningful, but Lord, it is, it is so much more than that. Lord, it is where our badness meets your goodness. And it's where we find shelter, and it's where we hide that, that Jesus was the lamb who was willing to be slain so that we could hide under his refuge. So, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who, who is without refuge, Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would show them your justice and the just penalty that should come to them. But while doing that, Lord, I pray that you would draw all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, under the shelter and the refuge that Jesus offers us. It is the safest place for us to be. And so, Lord, we pray that you would overwhelm us by your love and that you would show us who you are in this meal and that you would work in hearts so that it changes us and that we might follow you into the promised land. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.